0: He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast." It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, we always make sure that we are in fellowship with the Lord, ready to study his word under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. And since whenever we sin, we grieve and quench the Holy Spirit, the scripture says, the solution is first John one nine. If we confess our sins, that is privately to God the Father, confess means to admit or acknowledge our sins. If we acknowledge our sins to God, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So at the moment, the instant of confession, we're restored to fellowship. We recover the filling of the Holy Spirit so we can continue our spiritual advance to maturity. So we always begin with a couple of moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. And then we open in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that we have your word to come to, to turn to, that it explains to us everything about reality, that your word focuses exclusively on who you are, your grace in providing a perfect salvation for us, and that is accomplished through your son Jesus Christ, the eternal second person of the Trinity, who became flesh and dwelt among us. And that he did that for one purpose, to go to the cross, to die as our substitute. So Father, now as we continue our study of our Savior and who he is in his person and his work, we pray that you would help us to understand these things and that they would spur us on to greater uh, devotion to you, that they would challenge us to advance in our spiritual growth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we live in an era today, before we get started, John, if you will crank that down a little bit, I won't get blown away, the one over me. It's ruffling my notes, and we can't have that, can we? We live in an era today when people, are, our culture as a whole, is extremely divorced from its historical roots in the Protestant Reformation. Despite this, we continue to read surveys every now and then that show up in the paper that say that, that 60 or 70 percent of the population believes in God and, and maybe 48 to 50 percent of the nation has attended church in the last year or so. And so somehow we anesthetize ourselves to the realities and think, well, things really aren't so bad with so many people who still believe in God. But the question is, the concept of God, is the concept of God the same? now? On April 21st, which was Good Friday, there appeared an article in the Wall Street Journal that is an excellent analysis of what's happened in our culture in relationship to God. Now, if you remember where we are in our study of John, we came to John 17 in the high priestly prayer where Jesus begins to pray to the Father on behalf of the disciples and the church. That immediately brought to our attention something about the relationship between Jesus and the Father, which is one of subordination. Obviously, He's praying to the Father. That means He's dependent upon the Father. And we began to ask some questions about the relationship of Jesus Christ as the eternal second person of the Trinity to the Father. What, To what degree is He subordinate to the Father, and what does that mean, and what are its implications? And I'm telling you, The implications are profound. How you understand the Trinity, how a culture understands the Trinity and works out that result in its thinking affects the entire structure of society from the marriage to family to even the structure of government. And one of the things that has happened over the last century is that we have lost our understanding of the significance of the Trinity, we do not know who God is anymore. And if we don't know who God is, God being the creator of all things, if we do not know who God is anymore, then we are not going to be able to understand His creation because we must start with God. He is the starting point and the whole creation reflects Him. Well, this gives us an example of exactly what's happened in the nation across the country the article reads the faithful are redefining God dissatisfied with conventional images of an authoritarian or paternalistic deity now you have to read I'm going to read between the lines for you this fans ticking if um, I'm going to read between the lines here what he, what they mean what the writer really means by an authoritarian or paternalistic deity is the kind of God the Bible talks about that is, the God who is a sovereign God who is in charge of creation, the God who has defined roles in the human race, defined roles in the human race for men and women. See, if you have an authoritarian God who says that, that God created man and then created the woman to, to be the helper or assistant to the man, then that, now he's paternalistic and, and he uh, doesn't fit the feminist agenda. And see, the ultimate issue, I've pointed out several times, one of the applications of this whole doctrine that we're going through is has to do with the role of men, males, and females in human history, in in marriage, in the family, in the church, and all of this relates ultimately to who and what Jesus Christ is and his eternal relationship to the Father. And we are going through this in detail. I'm starting off with basic doctrines. We're going to advance so that you can understand this because we are so infected in our thinking by the world's concepts of equality and of, of the uh, role interchangeability between men and women and uh, the fact that subordination somehow means inequality and subservience that, that we've lost touch with what the Bible really teaches. So, obviously, what's happened this writer puts her... Finger right on the issue. Dissatisfied with conventional images of an authoritarian or paternalistic deity, people are embracing quirky, individualistic conceptions of God to suit their own spiritual needs. Genesis 1.26 and 27 says that God created man in His image. Well, we are returning the favor. We are creating God in our image. Although a steady 90% of Americans continue to say they believe in God, the number of those who say no standard definition comes close to their notion of the deity has more than doubled in the last 20 years. Now that means that when you ask somebody, do you believe in God, that means nothing to the person you're asking or they're going to come up with their own quirky little odd concept of what God is because they've just they've rejected the God of the Bible in its place they've got some you know pantheistic concept or some notion that this is the essence of the universe or whatever it might be. Reading on, instead, even many traditionalists increasingly envision a God who is far more amorphous accessible, and above all, quote, down here, than the old bearded man in the sky who has long dominated Western religion. See, we want God to be in man's image, so we're attributing all sorts of human concepts to God rather than starting with what Scripture says about God and developing it from there. Lyder the letter goes on to say, the signs are particularly evident this week's Easter and Passover celebrations. This Sunday, rather than... Dwelling on the risen Christ, the traditional Easter sermon topic, the Reverend Dave Asleson of Evanston, Illinois, says he plans to compare God to a gardener in order to appeal to the growing theological diversity at his Methodist church. Quote, I don't want anybody to feel left out, he says. Meanwhile, Reformed Jews are rolling out a new prayer book and Passover Haggadah that included Includes more open-ended references to God offering alternatives to the traditional Lord with such descriptions as source and sanctuary. Well, these adaptations have been in vogue in feminist and fringe circles for years. Now, notice that. Twice now we've hit on terminology that relates this redefining of God to, what, paternalism earlier and now feminist. See, that's what, what I'm saying here is the social agenda of the liberal feminist left, in order to justify their social agenda, they have to redefine the ultimate being in the universe. And that's exactly what's going on. I I, I keep up with the theological articles and the technical journals, and that's what's been going on for 20 years. And uh, I don't want to bore you with reading all that garbage up here to substantiate it, but this is exactly what they do in their articles, is they have to go back and redefine the historic definitions of the Trinity and Jesus Christ in order to be able to justify their social agenda. Now the article continues. But religious leaders say perhaps the most direct cause is the anti authoritarian individualistic strain that has gradually worked its way into mainstream divinity school curriculums. Notice, anti-authoritarian individualistic. See, only when you come to grips with the Trinity as it is in its eternal relationship, where there is perfect equality between all three members, yet distinct roles assigned to Son and Holy Spirit, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, only then do you have a true concept of authority. See, man wants to get the idea that somehow authority was introduced after the fall. I mean, obviously, with perfect environment, man could do whatever he wanted to. We haven't screwed up view of freedom. And, uh, and it was only after the fall that we needed to have some kind of authority. But authority is something that exists at the core of who God is. There is an eternal authority relationship within the Godhead. Therefore, we must... Align with that, but if we're operating on on a rejection of God, negative volition, uh, then we're anti-authoritarian, which is typical of all the baby boom generation, is that they've rejected authority and they put all the emphasis on the individual. So the direct cause is the anti-authoritarian individualistic strain that has gradually worked its way into mainstream divinity school curriculums. The seminaries that train clergy are now dominated by baby boomers who came of age in the 60s and are less wedded to traditional orthodoxy. In fact, indeed, the Reverend Peter Gomez, professor of Christian morals, and I'm not sure he has a clue what that is, but I've read some of his stuff, at Harvard University says he has noticed an increased reluctance by divinity school students to instruct or admonish from the pulpit on practically any subject. They have authority problems, he says. We don't run into that here, but... We won't go into that. These gentler, almost mystical forms of theology have found a receptive audience in today's affluent society. Notwithstanding the market gyrations of the past week, these are relatively peaceful and prosperous times. So even as many, so even as many Americans search for deeper connections with God, they aren't facing the kinds of crises that often prompt people to seek protection or salvation from above. Instead, they are cobbling together a spiritual life from a variety of religious influences along with a dash of yoga and psychotherapy or whatever else moves them. Very insightful. People seek out these new gods in the way they seek out new products in the marketplace. Now, that's one reason that what's happening today in, in many churches, is, and it's coming out of the seminaries, is a market-driven approach to church growth. That's one thing that I'm very resistant to. I dabbled with it some about 15 years ago before I began to realize all the dangers that were there, is that we are basically approaching Christianity as if it's another sales product. And so we're trying to figure out how to, um, how to market it, so that we can get all these uh, seekers into churches. And so we're changing music from traditional hymns that are content-oriented to choruses, contemporary choruses, which are light on content and heavy on a a music form that appeals to the uh, musical tastes of the baby boomer so that he can come into church and feel comfortable. That's the big value is we want people to come to church, visitors to come in. And feel comfortable well i ne- don 't necessarily want think that 's a value I, whether you 're a visitor here, whether you 're comfortable or not isn 't really the issue. The issue is whether or not you 're challenged by the Word of God, and sometimes that doesn 't make us feel comfortable when we 're challenged by the truth of god 's word, and sometimes it does, but that 's really a false value. Now the writer goes on, I'll skip a few paragraphs, says certainly not everyone is embracing these theological variations. At a national conference called Reimagining God that the Presbyterian Church USA helped sponsor some years ago, the mostly female participants suggested that God might be a woman and questioned Christ's divinity. At one point, conference leaders celebrated the Eucharist with milk and honey instead of bread and wine. Traditionalists were deeply offended and sent more than 10,000 letters of protest to the church headquarters in Louisville, Kentucky. Further it goes on. Indeed, the Reverend Ed Bacon, rector of All Saints Episcopal Church of Pasadena, California, believes this issue is at the heart of a debate that is raging even more publicly through mainline Protestantism, the place of homosexuality in the church. The key question is, is God expansive and loving enough to embrace homosexuals Or is the true God more judgmental, drawing the line at certain kinds of behavior? So it goes on and outlines some of the other problems at the social level and then comments conservative religious leaders say the multitude of concepts about God is the culprit. Now, that goes on and talks about how modern churches are adopting gender-free names and all of this. But what I want you to see from all of this is that In that very insightful article in in the Wall Street Journal, you realize that I'm not just up here talking about things that are not important. This is everyday occurrences throughout the land. There are social agendas at work that are driven, driven by fundamentally theological issues. The ultimate issues in life are always theological. If you push them back far enough, It is a a culture's view of God, which determines their view of man. And once you have a view of God and a view of man, you have to develop some concept of how man is going to relate to God or get to God, and that's your theology of spiritual life, whatever it may be. And from that, from your view of God, is going to flow your ethics system. And it is your system of ethics that is going to determine your legal system. So all of this is interrelated and it ultimately flows from uh, your view of God. This is why I have sort of stopped in our study. It's a good place to stop at the beginning of John 17 to focus on the Trinity so that we can gain a greater appreciation for who Jesus Christ is in terms of his eternal relationship with the Father. I also have emphasized the fact that, that historically the vocabulary has been developed although it's not always clearly understood, for expressing the relationship between the son and the father. And one of those terms, that, and I was asked a question about this at the after class the last time, is that the son is called the eternally begotten one. The eternally begotten one, and that's really not a great translation of monogenes, but that's the one that was chosen at the Council of Nicaea, and of course they spoke Greek, so they could do that. And by putting eternal on the front of that, they distinguished, uh, they were trying to distinguish between the begottenness of Christ, that he's monogamous, it really should be translated the unique one, that he is the monogamous, the only begotten one, the Son of God, versus all other created beings. And in that Nicene Creed, as we've looked at before, and we'll look at it eventually, is that Jesus is said to be the, he was begotten and not made. So they're drawing that distinction between uh, that he, he by saying he's eternally begotten, that he this expresses, the term begotten expresses his eternal relationship to the Father. What he did last time was to begin to outline the importance of this study, as I've done again today from a different perspective and to emphasize how crucial this is, that the Scripture teaches that the knowledge of God is the beginning of wisdom, and the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge, and that it is in Christ, for example, in Colossians 2.3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and that we are to advance in the spiritual life through the true knowledge of Him who called us. So what we see in the Scriptures again and again is the starting point for the spiritual life is an understanding and appreciation for who God is and who Jesus Christ is. Last time we started by looking at the Trinity and I covered five basic points on the Trinity including why there are passages in the Old Testament that emphasize both the plurality and unity of the Godhead and in the New Testament. So there is clearly a biblical basis for the Trinity, the idea that there are that the one God exists as Three persons, three distinct persons, and one essence. Now, having established those five points on the Trinity, I want to move on this morning to establishing the deity of Christ. Now, what I'm doing, so that you don't get lost in some of the detail, I'm constructing a foundation. Because when we finish, we're going to go someplace that that most people haven't gone in their churches in terms of thinking about who and what God is. So I want to lay these basic bricks in place, establish this foundation, and then we're going to develop uh, a little bit beyond that and push beyond the basics so that we can understand uh, who God is, some of these aspects about the relationships within the Trinity. So this morning, let's look at the deity of Christ. The deity of Christ. How do we know that Jesus Christ is... Fully God. We go back to the very uh, tried and true uh, apologetic argument. By apologetics, we mean defense of Christianity. That Jesus Christ is either Lord, liar, or lunatic, as Josh McDowell put it in Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Jesus Christ claimed to be the, claims to be God. He claims to be the Lord of the universe. Now, when somebody makes a claim like that, they're either telling the truth or they're not. Now, if he's telling the truth, then he is who he claims to be and we should follow everything he says. But if he's not telling the truth, then he is either intentionally deceiving people or he is self-deceived. If he is intentionally deceiving people, then he is the most evil person of all history because he has deceived hundreds of thousands, millions of people into thinking that they would go to heaven on the basis of his death on the cross. So if he's not telling the truth, you can't say he's a good man. You can't say he's a moral innovator or a great teacher. All you can say is this man is one of the greatest imposters and deceivers of all time. If he is not deceiving us intentionally and he is deceiving us, then he would be self-deceived, which means he's insane. Now, the evidence from the Scriptures and from history clearly do not substantiate uh, the fact that he is insane. Are you having trouble hearing me? Okay. We clearly would not... Um, substantiate a view that Jesus is crazy or lacked mental capacity. He is profound. His arguments uh, in response to his critics are some of the most profound, sophisticated, and simple arguments ever presented in human history. So we look at the fact that Jesus made clear claims to deity, but there are many more evidences than that, so let's begin to look at them. First of all, under the doctrine of the deity of Christ, we see that the Scripture ascribes certain titles of deity to Jesus. Titles of deity, titles that are exclusive to deity, are ascribed to Jesus. He is clearly called God in numerous passages. Now, as we go through this, I'm going to have you look up some passages and others you can just write down in your notes. As I've said before, this is a great way to get this into, your, into the Scripture, and you can go from passage to scripture passage to passage, and just uh, write in the margin the cross-references and then you can create like a daisy chain through the passage so you can come back and use this sometime if you're witnessing to somebody or just trying to study it out for one reason or another. Titus 2.13, Titus 2.13, we read, Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, there it's, it, it appears fairly accurate in the English, our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. but in the Greek it's even more precise. He uses a rule in the Greek called the Granville Sharp Rule. Granville Sharp, incidentally, was a British um, jurist and uh, was responsible along with William Wilberforce for bringing in an abolition of slavery. In England, he was also a Greek scholar. I'm always amazed when I get into a study of history how many theologians that we know of also had specialties in other areas. These were men who, who truly pushed back the borders of, of thinking and thought and, and explored all of God's creation. But the Granville Sharp Rule basically says that in Greek, when you have a, a construction, where you have an article, and then a noun, and then the conjunction chi, and then another noun. That this one article causes these two nouns to be linked together as synonyms. Okay, it's a technical argument from grammar, and that's the construction that, that Paul uses in Titus 2.13... Uh, you have an article before God, but not before Savior. They're linked by the word chi, which is and, so that God and Savior are, are linked together as synonyms. And this shows that, G, that Christ Jesus is called God by Paul in Titus 2.13. Another passage that is familiar to many of us, especially at time, is Isaiah 9.6. Isaiah 9.6, there we read, "...for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace." Now, if we look at that passage, the first thing we should note is a child will be born. That indicates that there will be a human child born through natural processes given to us being the Jewish race. So he would be Jewish. The second thing we notice there is that He's called a Son. That indicates not only in His humanity He will be male, but that Jesus, this, the implication here is that Jesus is a Son before He's given. A Son is given. He's a Son before He's born in His humanity. And that's one of the things that we're going to establish eventually is the, the title Son of God is an eternal title for Jesus Christ and that He does not become the Son of God At any time during his life, either the incarnation, baptism of John the Baptist, crucifixion, ascension, or at any other time, he is eternally the Son of God, and that's one indication of it. Then it says the government will rest on his shoulders. This indicates that his messianic rule, that he will rule over the earth, and then certain uh, things will be applied to him. Now, you have to remember the Jewish context is that a name reflects character reflects the essence of who someone is. So when Isaiah says his name will be, he's not saying that these are simply ascriptions of him. These are not simply appellations that are uh, attached to him, but they say something about his essence, about who he is. He is called Wonderful Counselor. The second title is Mighty God. So the son that is given, that is born, obviously emphasizes humanity. At the very beginning, a child will be born. That emphasizes humanity. But this human person is called Mighty God. Now, this is a great text to go to when you, if you are explaining the gospel to someone who's Jewish because this goes to an Old Testament text for them and shows that the Messiah is God and He is humanity. Then the next phrase is Eternal Father. Now, at one point or another, somebody always comes along and says, well, how does this affect the Trinity? Jesus is called the Father. Well, that's because it's a bad translation. It is Father of Eternity in the Hebrew. Father of Eternity, not Eternal Father. The way the Hebrew is constructed, you have a, you have a, what's called a construct form here, which is like a genitive in our language. And it's Father of Eternity, which means that He is eternal. Father of Eternity is just an idiomatic way of saying that He is eternal, which is another ascription of deity. Only God is eternal. But it emphasizes that, number one, this child is born... So that indicates beginning to his humanity. But on the other hand, he is called Father of Eternity. So we see that there is an aspect to this child that is eternal. So we've looked at Titus 2.13. Jesus is called the Great God. Isaiah 9.6, he's called the Mighty God and Father of Eternity. And then 1 John 5.20. 1 John 5.20. We read, and we know that the Son of God has come. There we see that title applied to Jesus again, the Son of God. That the Son of God has come and has given us understanding in order that we might know Him who is true. That refers to veracity, one of the attributes of God, that He is absolute truth. That we might know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true. As believers, we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ This is, this, literally he, this one referring to Jesus Christ. This one is the true God and eternal life. So John clearly states that Jesus Christ is the true God in 1 John 5.20. So that's the first point. Titles exclusive of deity are ascribed to Jesus in Titus 2.13, the great God, Isaiah 9.6, the mighty God, and 1 John 5.20, the true God. Second point. Jesus Christ is inseparably identified with God in many passages, and I'm going to look at eight of them. He is inseparably identified with God. First of all, Scripture says that to know Jesus Christ is to know God. John 14:8 through 9 is one passage we studied that not too long ago in the question-answer session after the meal the night before he went to the cross, Philip says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you? And yet you have not come to know me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father. John says in John 1.18 that no one has seen the Father at any time, but the only begotten God, that is Jesus Christ, has revealed Him. So to know Jesus Christ is to know God. John 14.8-9 and John 1.18. Second, to see God, this is the subpoints. There's about eight subpoints under the main point two. To see Jesus Christ is to see God. That's also in John fourteen nine. And then third, he is called the image. The image. And we've seen that our study of image that an image is a representation of something. Someone represents someone. So the focus of an image is that it represents someone. He is called the image, the representation the representative of the invisible God. Colossians 1.15, where we read, And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, and that word there is prototakos, which means preeminent one. That's the implication. It's not first in terms of order or time, but it is first in terms of preeminence relating to his title as the Son of God. It is not indicating that there was a time when Christ was not as Arius asserted, and several others want to make Jesus some form of creature. He is the image of the invisible God, which would imply that all of the attributes of God apply to Jesus as well. So to see Jesus Christ is to see God, John fourteen nine. That was a second sub-point. Third, he's the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1, 15. And then fourth, he alone, Jesus Christ alone, reveals God and is the highest possible revelation of God this is in John 1 14 and the word that is the logos this is a title that applies to Jesus Christ the logos became flesh that's the incarnation at the moment of his virgin birth Uh, Jesus Christ I mean uh, this Christ the eternal second person of the Trinity became flesh took on true humanity and dwelt among us and we Saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. He alone, Jesus Christ alone, reveals God and is the highest possible revelation of God. We don't need further revelation. Jesus Christ is God, so how could anything else go beyond that? That's why the New Testament is the culmination of divine revelation in history. The fifth point. Subpoint he is the called the flashing forth of the glory of God in hebrews one three hebrews one three reads in the English he is the radiance of his glory the radiance of his glory is the Greek word op algasma looks like this a p a U G A S M A. Now the interesting thing is the M A suffix indicates the fullest and final expression of something, the ultimate goal. Of something, for example, we talk about our Paul prays that we might all be filled with the pleroma of God in Ephesians. The pleroma that is the fullness, that is the ultimate fullest expression of God. That's why. A pleroma applies to the mature believer. He's a pleroma believer. The fullness of God inhabits his life. So, alpagasma al- al- indicates the fullest expression of something. And this would relate to the glory of God, the flashing forth, the fullest expression of the glory of God. And as then said, and the exact representation, and this is the Greek word, character, uh, which looks like this. C-H-A-R-A-K-T-E-R. Now, you can guess what that comes from, what how we got that word into English. Character it is the essence of God. Here we see that He is the exact representation of His nature. hypostasis That's the essence of God. So, Jesus Christ... I don't think you could find language more precise or more profound than than what's in Hebrews 1 3 to express the fact that Jesus Christ possesses all of the attributes of deity. He is the radiance, the flashing forth of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, his hypostasis, and upholds all things by the word of his power. That's point number five. Jesus is the flashing forth, the expression, the revelation of the glory of God, and then sixth subpoint, that in Jesus Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That word fullness is pleroma, so it indicates the fullest expression of deity. Colossians two nine. For in Him, all the fullness of deity. There's nothing left out. There is no sense that He is anything less than true, undiminished deity. There's no sense that He is a creature. There's no sense that He lacks anything that God the Father has. He is the... He has all the fullness of deity, dwells in Him in bodily form. That's His humanity, undiminished deity and true humanity, united forever in the person of Jesus Christ. The 7th subpoint: Christ existed in the very essence of God in Philippians 2.6. Christ existed eternally in the very essence of God. Philippians 2.6 reads, Who, although He existed... Past tense, meaning in eternity past, in the form of God. Now, this word for form, the word English word form indicates some sort of external appearance. But that's not true in the Greek. It is the Greek word morphe, M-O-R-P-H-E. And if you've ever studied Plato and Platonic philosophy... Uh, Plato said everything that we see is just a reflection of the ultimate ideal in heaven which was the the the, the morphe it has to do with the essence of a thing. So when you look at uh, you look at your dining room chair, you look at your lazy boy recliner, you look at a rocking chair, all those things have one thing in common. Something that they have common to their essence, their chair. And so Plato said there's an ultimate ideal somewhere that's that's the the ideal chair. Now, that's the concept of morphe. It's that inner essence that all these things have in common. So when you use the, Paul uses the word morphe, he's not using it in terms of an external shape, but he's using it in terms of that internal form, that internal essence that makes a thing what it is. And so he says that Christ existed in the form of God. He means the very essence of God. What makes God God is what Jesus existed in from all eternity. And he did not regard equality with God. Equality, so he is fully and equal with God. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. So, the seventh point is that Jesus existed in the very essence of God, Philippians two six. And then the eighth sub-point to point two, the eighth sub-point is that Jesus Christ is to receive equal honor as God. He is to receive equal honor as God. And we saw this in John 5, 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. And in that context, he is exercising judgment, calling people forth from the dead, which is the privilege of God. Also, we would look at uh, Philippians 2, 10 and 11, that uh, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is God. So he receives equal honor as God. That's point. All of that is point number two. Point number two, that Jesus Christ is inseparably identified with God throughout the Scriptures. Point number three, under the deity of Christ... Jesus Christ is clearly called God in the Scriptures. I'm just going to run through these rapidly because because there are a number of these. He is called God by Thomas, John 20:28. 20, Thomas answered and said to him, "My Lord and my God." When Thomas saw the resurrected Christ and put his hands in the nail prints, and it, when Thomas felt the nail prints in Jesus' hands and the the sword wound in his side, he said, "My Lord and my God." Stephen, as he was being stoned says they went on Acts seven fifty nine, they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. So Stephen recognizes that Jesus is full deity. The Ethiopian eunuch in Acts eight thirty seven, and Philip said, If you believe with all your heart you may, and he, the Ethiopian eunuch, said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So the Ethiopian eunuch recognized Jesus as deity Paul in numerous passages. Galatians 2.20, Colossians 1.15-17, Colossians 2.9, numerous other passages. Paul states that Jesus is God. We've seen Colossians 1.15, he's the image of the invisible God, and calls him the Son of God. Uh, In Galatians 2.20, I now live in the flesh. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. So Paul, on many occasions, refers to Jesus as God. Peter, in 2 Peter 1.1, writes, Simon Peter, a bond servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of, and then we have the Granville Sharp rule again, the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. So he links God and Savior as synonyms in that uh, constr- Greek construction there in 2 Peter 1. 1. Jude called, said, refers to Jesus in verse 25. The only God our Savior. Jude 25. The only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. And then John in 1 John 5.20 states... We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. So throughout the Scriptures, Jesus is called God by many different people. That's point three. He's given the attributes of God. Now, I'm not going to go through all of this because it's a tremendous list, but we'll just hit a few of them so you can have that in your notes for reference. Uh, I've I've really done a detailed study of this. If you want the full doctrine, it will be eventually put out on the internet within a few weeks. And uh, there's a vast amount of, of scriptures I don't even have time to go through to substantiate all these points. Jesus is called holy in Luke 135. He's called righteous in 2 Timothy 4.8 and many others. He is uh, ascribed to Him as love, John 15.9. He is... The epitome of grace—he's full of grace and truth. John 1:14. He is said to be eternal. You can link Micah 5:2 and John 8:58. Micah 5:2 and John 8:58—that's another good passage to go to if you're witnessing to someone with a Jewish background. His faithfulness is ascribed to him in Second Thessalonians 3:3. He is said to be good in John 10:11 in an absolute sense. He's immutable in Hebrews 13:5. Yes, uh, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13:5. He is omniscient in many different passages. Matthew 11:27 is just one of them. John 2:24 and 25 is another. Matthew 11:27, John 2:24 to 25. He is omniscient. He's omnipresent. John 3:13. Omnipresent. John 3:13. And he is omnipotent, and we 'll use isaiah nine six and john eleven four there omnipotent isaiah nine six John eleven four So all of these attributes holiness, righteousness, love, grace, eternality, faithfulness, goodness, immutability, omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence all of these are attributes that only God can have, yet all of these attributes are ascribed to Jesus christ that 's point four. He has the attributes of deity. Point five, he's worshipped as God. He is worshipped as God. Whenever God confronts anyone worshipping an idol, they are confronted. And yet, when Jesus is worshipped as God, there is no challenge or confrontation. He's worshipped as God by the angels in Hebrews 1.6. He was worshipped in Bethlehem by the shepherds in Luke 2.15. He's worshipped as God by a leper in Matthew 8.2 by a ruler in Matthew 9.18, by the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15.25, by a mother in Matthew 20.20, by the blind man in John 9.38, by a group of Greeks who came to seek him out in John 12.20 and 21, and by the apostles in Matthew 14. Now, I know you didn't get all of that down, but you can get the tape. I want to impress you with the fact that he is worshipped as God many times and never challenged. Personally, point number six, personally, he claimed to be God. He claimed to be God in John eight fifty-eight and in John ten thirty. There are many other passages, but we'll just put those two out as key passages. John eight fifty eight and John ten thirty, Jesus claimed to be God. And point seven, he performed the works. Which only God can perform the works which only God can perform. He is the Creator of everything. God the Father is the Architect of the plan. It is Jesus Christ who carried it out. Uh, John one three says that by that there is nothing in existence that was not created by Him. And Colossians 1.16 as well. So He is the Creator. He forgives sin. He heals the paralytic in order that we might know that He could forgive sin because if He could heal a paralyzed man, obviously He had greater power than that. Mark two one through 12 He gives life to whomever He wishes. John 5.21 He gives life to whomever He wishes. The very claim that you could give life to whomever you wish Would be arrogant in anyone else. He raises the dead in John eleven forty three, where he raised Lazarus from the dead. He answers prayer in John fourteen fourteen. He is the judge of men in John five twenty two through twenty seven. The judge of men, John five twenty two through twenty seven. He possesses the glory of God. Compare Isaiah forty two eight with John seventeen five. He possesses. The glory of God. Compare Isaiah 42.8 with John 17.5. He performed miracles that attested to his role as the Messiah in John 5.36 and John 15.24. He performed miracles. Also Matthew 11.4-6. Matthew 11.4-6, John 5.36 and John 15.24. Many other things He did. He cleansed the temple, cast out demons, claimed to defeat Satan, and claimed to be David's Lord, all of which indicate acts of deity. He performed the works that only God can perform. Jesus Christ is exactly who He claimed to be. He is eternal God. But He is also man. The reason He became a man is so He could go to the cross to die there as our substitute, to pay the penalty for sin. See, God recognized that man had a problem but that man could do nothing to solve his own problem. So God did everything for man. That is what we mean when we talk about the sufficiency of Christ. See, man doesn't do anything to be saved. We cannot ever be good enough for all our righteousnesses, the Scripture says, are filthy rags. That's the best that we can do, fall far short of God's absolute demand of perfect righteousness. So God had to provide a perfect solution. He sent His Son, the second person of the Trinity, to go to the cross to take our place so that our sins would be poured out upon Him, and as our sins are imputed to Him, then at salvation, His perfect righteousness is attributed to us or imputed to us so that we are declared just because we possess His perfect righteousness. That could not happen with someone who was simply a man. It could only happen with someone who was God who possessed perfect righteousness and who in His essence was infinite so that the quality of the works that he performed also possessed that quality of infinity. Now, we've just begun to look at a few of the points related to Jesus' deity, and the next section I have is quite lengthy, and there that's really going to be point eight, where the New Testament ascribes to Jesus the works of God in the Old Testament. And there I want to go through a number of passages to show how Old Testament Scriptures are applied to Yahweh, and then those same Old Testament passages are applied to Jesus in the New Testament. And that is a, a fantastic study to understand that, and we will wait and cover that next time. So with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank You so much for our so great salvation, that this is not something that is very that is to be treated lightly, It is not something that was just a a simple act on your part, but something that involved planning from eternity past and involved the greatest of all sacrifices, which is to send your Son to take our place on the cross. And that during those three hours, He was judicially separated from you even without sacrificing His essential deity. But during that time as our sin was poured out on Him, He bore our condemnation. He bore our punishment. Every single sin in human history was taken care of by Him on the cross. Father, we do thank You for Your incredible love in providing such a salvation. We pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of their salvation, uncertain of their eternal destiny, that this would be the opportunity for them to make that sure. Scripture says, All you have to do to be saved is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's not a matter of moral reformation. It's not a matter of joining a church. It's not a matter of ritual. It is simply a matter of faith alone in Christ alone, that you accept the free gift of salvation because Jesus Christ did it all. Father, we pray that those of us who are believers would be challenged with the depth of your plan of salvation and and all that was involved in it and the marvelous nature of our Savior that it might spur us on, that we might be motivated to greater growth and spiritual development. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.